Thank you um, just all for joining us this morning. Alan, thank you for leading worship this morning for us. Um, I love leading worship. I love kind of, you know, being in front of the mic and getting to lead the congregation. But it always hits different when I get to kind of move out from that front of mic experience and get to join in the chorus of the whole church. And it's really cool that, you know, when I'm singing in the congregation, I get to lift both hands. Um, usually when I'm leading, I can only lift, lift the one. Uh, Kayla Donnarumma calls it my, my holy wave because I can't ever do both hands at the same time. But thank you again, Alan, for leading us this morning in, in worship. But I do have to be honest, church, if I'm allowed to be honest with you guys. I try to be at least. This has been probably one of the craziest seasons of my life. I mean, talk about how life has its ups and its downs. I feel like lately I've been on this emotional roller coaster as we are patiently waiting for the birth of our son. I keep finding myself trying to go with the flow. But as the wise Chris Cordery said to me last week in the hallway when I asked him a question about being a dad, he said, it's really hard to go with the flow, Will, because with kids, there's no flow. There's just the kid and they just do their own thing. Um, man, I didn't think parents were going to amen that, but okay. Um, but seriously, I cannot wait for our son to be born. Like literally, I, it could be any day now. Like in full honesty, I didn't really think I was going to be preaching today. I was thinking like last night, come on, he's going to come. Jimmy's going to have to preach my message. It's going to be funny. But I'm still here. And, uh, you know, me and Sharon had a conversation right before I came up that if she does go into labor while I'm up here to not tell me, cause I will walk off and leave. Um, so if, that, if, I just, if I walk out, you know, Jimmy's just going to take over. <laughs> but it's crazy, yeah. I'm, I'm literally waiting any day now for my son to be born. I'm just in this moment of waiting. But even amidst all of this happiness and all of this normal day stuff that still has to go on, right? Life continues to go on even though I'm pumped beyond belief. You know how hard it is to get work done? Sorry, Jimmy. You know how hard it is to get work done and life done when you're just waiting for this amazing person to come? It seems like life can just kind of get in the way of a lot of things, especially lately. It seems like the world tries to quickly become this joy killer for us. This has become very evident to me. About three weeks ago, um, I had a really bad day. About three weeks ago, I was taking Sharon to one of her many, many doctor's appointments lately. And, you know, this is the part where it's all cute. You get to go to the doctor's appointment. You get to hear the baby's heartbeat. The doctor's like, oh, are you excited? I'm like, yeah, I'm excited. Oh, you meant her. Um, and I love these moments, and we, me and Sharon get to talk on the car ride, and it's real romantic. We talk about what it was like when we were dating, how's it been since we've been married, and we talk about what's life going to look like now? What's life going to be like? What can we even imagine? And I'm really blessed, <laughs> and I'm just really blessed that I've gotten the opportunity to really never miss an appointment. Every doctor's appointment that Sharon had, I got to be there. That's the, the joy of being a pastor. My schedule is a little bit flexible some mornings, so I'm like, hey, let's go. Everything's scheduled at 8 in the morning, but hey, it's fun. But a few weeks ago, as we're pulling up to the doctor's office, they made us aware that I was no longer able to come to the visits due to COVID. Um, womp, womp, womp. We always knew that was going to be a thing, and in the grand scheme of things, I know this, it's really not that big of a deal. Not even everybody gets to hear the heartbeat every single time. But it's, just, it's something I look forward to kind of every other week and now every week. But needless to say, it threw me off that day because I thought I was going to go hear my son's heartbeat again. But it's okay. Hey, I'm still pumped. It's okay. Things happen. I'll wait in the car. I'll read my Bible, and I'll just sit and wait. Nothing is going to throw me off, except as I was sitting in the car, I began to smell gasoline. Uh, okay. So I step out of the car. I look, and there under my car is the dreaded drip. Some of you with hoopties for cars know exactly what I'm talking about. The moment you know that the car you've been trying to push to the limit is finally showing that it has some limits, and there's a fuel leak. Can I get an amen, Nick? Yes. 
Okay, no big deal. Hey, it happens. Fuel leaks happen all the time. It's going to be fine. I've had the car forever. But I'm a little annoyed, I guess. So then Sharon comes out. We talk. Oh, the heartbeat was great. You missed it. Eh, well. And then... We, have, we hashed out a whole plan, okay? We're going to go take my car to the shop. Sharon's going to follow me in her car. It's all good. We're, we're moving now. We have a plan. So before we even leave our house, Sharon's car has a leak. What did I do wrong? I'm like, okay, I'm beginning to wonder, am I being punished for something first? No appointment, then a fuel leak, now a coolant leak. What else could happen? So I hung my head just kind of in sorrow, and as I looked down, literally a flat tire. This, you couldn't, I couldn't make this up. I'm sitting there going, okay, we couldn't go to the hospital. I'm pretty mad. All right, I have a gas leak. All oh, happens. I'll have Nick check it out later. Then I have a coolant leak. Okay, oh, man, I have a flat tire. What did I do so wrong? And this led us to being without a car for almost three weeks. Thank you for everybody letting me borrow your cars. Work was getting crazy. Plans were getting changed all the time. Due dates were getting closer and things just needed to get done. And it feels like every day had a new challenge or trouble that was trying to distract me from the things that were bringing joy in my life. But that same day where I got to miss the doctor's appointment, I had a fuel leak, I had a coolant leak and a flat tire. I had to meet with Jimmy for work. I know. (laughs) Something, okay, I'm kind of having a bad day. I'm a little annoyed. I have a headache. But we must get work done. The work goes on. Sunday still happens. So we go to catch up at this coffee shop, and we, we're sitting, and we're planning our new series. We open our Bibles, and as I open our Bibles, we're talking about we're going to do a study on James. So I start reading it, and the first words I read, I kid you not, was this. Dear brothers and sisters, when troubles of any kind come your way, consider it an opportunity for great joy. I didn't feel great joy. <laughs> this was supposed to be a planning meeting, and it ended being this long Bible study between me and your pastor. Because these words just stopped me. The author of this verse is saying, when trials, when troubles and tough situations come, you should consider it a great opportunity for joy. And I think it's safe to say the older we get, and me being almost 30, the older we get, we see many trials, right? Which means that there's a lot of opportunities for great joy. But I fear that some of us have lost what it means to have joy in our life. And maybe something worse. Maybe some of us have never really experienced true joy, even some of us sitting in this room today. Lately, it feels like, you know, kind of everything going on in the church has been changing and being kind of a little overwhelming. I can't only speak to what I'm seeing, but it feels like every time a person comes to faith and is ready to experience this true joy, I hear about four or five people walking away saying, hey, I never found joy in anything, not even the church. I'm going to be candid. I don't think it's because of COVID or the pandemic. We love to make COVID kind of this scapegoat. Hey, I don't want to go to that party. Oh, well, COVID. This time, I don't think we can blame COVID for our issue. COVID's caused a lot of issues. COVID has caused a lot of problems, but I don't think that COVID brought a problem into the church. I think that this pandemic has brought to the surface how many of us have lacked true joy this whole time. And this has us looking at our faith through this different lens in each moment, different lens in these different moments of crisis. Some of us, are now living in this troubled life with a wavering faith and little joy. The author of that verse we read had a lot to say about joy and life and the troubles of this world trying to get in our way. So if you have your Bibles with you, would you open up to the letter of James? It'll be all the way at the end of your Bible or in the words of Pastor Jimmy, you have two-thirds in your Bible, and you'll be there. But before we get 
into all of James's thoughts on life, joy, and how to have opportunities for great joy, I think it's important that we know more about the author and what's going on during the time that he wrote this letter. So I'm going to give you three guesses on who do you think wrote the book of James. Oh, good job. You guys have learned in church. This is a great day. He says this in chapter 1, verse 1. This letter is from James, a slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. So right off the bat in verse 1, we know James is someone who believes in God. He's a servant of God and knows that Jesus truly, in fact, is the true son of God. But one thing that James doesn't mention is that he's actually Jesus' half-brother. If that was me, I would brag all the day long. Every email I wrote would be like, okay, we have him worship at this time on Sunday, signed the half-brother of Jesus. Uh, I feel like this would be something I would bring up constantly. But the more we study history, the more we begin to realize that James was not always someone who thought his brother was who he said he was. If you have siblings, I'm sure it would be hard for you to believe that your sibling was a deity. But this was the case for James. John chapter 5 tells us that his brothers didn't believe in him. But then after Jesus' resurrection, we read in the book of Acts chapter 1, all these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. So after James sees his brother literally come back to life, he becomes sold out. He becomes this person who's going to be a leader in the church. He's going to be known as a pillar of the early church. Church history tells us that James got so sold out for Jesus that just like many others who followed Jesus, he was martyred, he was killed for his faith. Tradition tells us that the religious leaders of that day took James to the highest point of the temple and then threw him off. And he survived because he didn't die from the fall. So they continued to stone and beat him until finally someone came up with a club and split his head open. Graphic scene for James. But this is the same author that said, in all times and all troubles have joy. This is the same James who had a lot to say about joy, faith, and living out your faith in Jesus, not just talking the talk, but walking the walk. This letter of James is actually written in the, uh, the earliest written book of the New Testament. It was written in the 40s, not the 1940s, not the 1840s, like literally the 40s, like 40 AD. It's over. This five-chapter letter is a quick read. It takes you about 15, 20 minutes, and it has some crazy impactful truths in it and crazy challenges for us. And after reading it several times in my life and then rereading it for this series, I felt as if God had opened my eyes to something new. It's amazing how the Holy Spirit can do that. that you can read the same book or letter of the Bible constantly, but then some, some days something just clicks and you just get something that you never saw before. So let's dive in this morning to unpack what James was saying to the early church. Verse 1 tells us this. This letter is from James, a slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I'm writing to the 12 tribes... Jewish believers scattered abroad, greetings. It's always important when you read that you find out who the letter was meant for. And James mentions who he's writing to. He says, I'm writing to the 12 tribes, the Jewish believers. These was, this was the early church that was in Jerusalem. And these Jewish believers were scattered from Jerusalem. And all who were figuring out this new faith had to be scattered. The question is, well, why were they, why were they scattered? Good question. I'm glad you asked. Because of what we see going on in the book of Acts. If you've been to coming to Crossbridge for a little while, you know we love reading the book of Acts. We read it every year. And in Acts chapter 7 and 8, we read about this public stoning of a man named Stephen. He was a spirit-filled follower of Jesus. And because the religious leaders didn't agree with him, they murdered him too. On the day of this murder, Acts 8 tells us this in verse 1. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. 
So this is who James is writing to. James is writing to a persecuted church, a church that is being hunted down, thrown in prison, and sometimes even killed over their faith. We don't experience that here in this room at this church. But we have troubles. But this is the audience. This is the recipient of the letter that James is writing to, the persecuted church. If you had to write a letter to those who had to experience what the early church experienced, what would you say? What would you say to the followers of Jesus in your city? I said skitty. I practiced that too last night, and I said that then too. Jesus in your city, scattered abroad, if you were James. Would you try and comfort them? Would you tell them, hey, I'm praying for your safety, and I hope you make it out? Would you tell them to lay low in their faith until all this passes over? So James's first words to this persecuted church is this. He says this. He says, dear brothers and sisters, when troubles of any kind come your way, consider it an opportunity for great joy. Don't forget who James is writing to. He's talking to a church that's being hunted down and killed over their faith. And he says, hey, consider it an opportunity for great joy. When he's saying troubles here, he's talking about a lot more than a few car problems, right? He's talking about some deep troubles coming their way. And this is very different from our day to day. Our nice cars won't work sometimes. That's inconvenient. James is talking to something a lot deeper here. The teaching James is giving can absolutely be applied to the trivial troubles we have, but he's specifically talking about those hard times that come our way where we don't know how we're going to get to the next day. We don't know how we're going to get to the next moment. Has anyone in this room ever felt that way? And he said, these troubles these trials and pains that you're going through, it's an opportunity for great joy. How is that even possible? Are you really able to have joy when things are going so wrong, when things are no longer easy? How can we have joy? Usually, when we're in a moment of having real troubles, joy is the farthest thing from our minds. And remember, we talked about this a couple months ago when we were doing our Advent series, right? Joy and happiness are not the same thing, but yet we always think that. We always kind of equate them as equals, but they're not. Happiness is this fleeting feeling, this moment that, that can leave and come at any time. But joy is something that can remain and can stay with us forever. Yes, it may be tough or it might be even inappropriate at times to find happiness in our troubles, but we can absolutely always find joy. James continues on in verse 3. For you know when your faith is tested, your endurance has a chance to grow. So let it grow. For when your endurance is fully developed, you will be perfect, complete, and needing nothing. James is letting us in on some insight about the effect of troubled times. He's saying that in these troubled times, it can lead us to a new maturity that we haven't had before, a new maturity in our faith that we've never experienced before. How we handle the situation can either consume us or it can challenge us to step into a deeper, more mature faith. For this to happen, we have to change the lens that we look through when it comes to troubled times and hard times. It's not saying, let's pretend everything is good. Let's pretend everything is great. And every time someone asks me, hey, how's life going? I'm just going to say, fine. That's not what he's saying. That's not changing your lens. That's simply insecurity and avoidance. But when troubles come and hard times come, like a pandemic and everything in the pandemic that we've been experiencing, it reveals something. When troubled times come, it does. It reveals our faith. When life is easy and going our way, it's really easy to have faith. 
It's really easy to come here on a Sunday, put a smile on, sing the songs on the screen and have a great time. It's easy when everything's going our way. But when trials come, when things get hard, when things get rough and we feel lost, it reveals the maturity of our faith. In those times, we wonder if our faith will remain. I make a lot of mistakes, probably too many. But you guys remember that old saying, learn from your mistakes? When we go through something tough and we endure through it, naturally our faith gets stronger. When our faith is tested and all seems lost, this is an opportunity for great joy because it becomes a moment that you get the opportunity to lean on God more than you ever have before. And this produces great endurance that leads to growth in your faith. When Sharon first became pregnant, it was a very intense moment for us. I mean, um, that wasn't troubled by any means, but it wasn't this magic movie moment that we're like, oh, and balloons are falling from the ceiling. I don't even know what movie that's in. But I would not say troubled. It, was just, it wasn't this magic mo- moment I thought we were going to have, right? I thought she was going to surprise me with some kind of box. No, we were standing and she flips over the test. It's positive and both jaw dropped literally for an hour. I'm not kidding. We were jaw dropped for an hour. And then we went into our room. We sat and we stared at a wall for another hour, got in the car, drove to her mom's house and said, what now? But a few days later after that, I don't know, I had this moment. I don't know what happened, but I just got filled with this terror. Not for what's going to change in my life by having a son, but I had this, this terrible moment where I thought, what if something happens? And I became, so, I became so consumed with the thoughts, keep thinking, what if something happens? I don't know what I would do, God, and I'm afraid to even begin to put a hope up in this because I don't want anything to happen. So in my fear, I had to lean on God. And it changed the way now that I've looked at everything. That one, it was probably like a 30-second moment that I was just terrified. But it's changed the way I view things. Because I remember sitting there praying, God, I have no idea what I'm supposed to do or what I'm going to need to do, but I need you. God, I know that you've placed this child and you've entrusted it into Sharon. You know every hair that will be on this child's head. I can't, there's nothing I can do to control it. I gotta put my trust in you. That's really hard to put your trust in someone else when you care about something so deeply. I said, God, I need you. I have to trust you. I have to lean on you because I'm scared realizing I cannot control any of this. It changed my faith because I have to lean on God no matter the outcome and trust in his wisdom and his knowledge and in his sovereignty. I once heard this story um, told by a pastor named Francis Chan about these missionaries that were in the underground church in a certain part in an undisclosed location in the world. And this underground church got found out by whatever leaders were of that of that country, and they were hunted down for their faith, just like the moments in the early church. So when they got put in this literal hole, right, these, these police put them in a literal hole for their faith, they had a Bible. And one of the missionaries ripped off pages of the Bible and secretly started handing it to everybody. So everybody had one page of the Bible, and they would hold on to this page just to remind themselves that God was with them even in this moment. And these missionaries who were put in this hole, right, they were being taken out one by one and killed for their faith. And in the hole, they actually started arguing with each other about who would get killed first because they kept trying to sacrifice each other, sacrifice themselves for the other person. So you had two people going, look, no, I'll go first, no, I'll go first. And it was going back and forth, who was going to be killed first? 
But some people actually survived this encounter and got rescued, and they still, still met years later to talk about all the things they've experienced in the hole. But what gets me about the story is apparently when they would talk, they would actually describe how they miss the feeling of being in the hole. I know we're probably thinking like, well, that's crazy. But when they described it, they said while they were in real trouble, they leaned on God completely and they felt him close by. Come on, church, you know God's close to the brokenhearted, amen? In this moment, They leaned on God and they were desperate. They were dependent on God. And they say they were never closer to him in this troubled trial time that I've definitely never experienced. They said it brought, they had joy. That's supernatural. That's unexplainable. When our faith is tested, our endurance has a chance to grow. And that leads us to lacking nothing. It's not because we become this person who knows everything, but it's because we are reminded that we can lean on God who knows all things. We can lack nothing because God is saying, you have me for everything. Amen? This is why James continues on in verse five to say, if you need wisdom, ask our generous God and he will give it to you. He will not rebuke you for you asking, but when you ask him, be sure that your faith is in God alone. Do not waver for a person with divided loyalty is as unsettled as the wave on the sea that is blown and tossed by the wind. Such people should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Their loyalty is divided between God and the world. They are unstable in everything they do. So James is saying, if you need wisdom in any situation, go ask God for it and he will give it to you. He isn't gonna yell at you for seeking wisdom and seeking his guidance. God has given every believer his Holy Spirit so we can have wisdom in all situations. This is somehow a supernatural thing. When you put your faith in God, you're this human being that somehow has the very spirit of God dwelling within you who's guiding you in life. And we're gonna continue to unpack that over this series, but CB Youth has been talking about this for the past few weeks. This idea that the Holy Spirit actually does guide us in this life. He's not this passive kind of wind thing that we kind of just put imagery to. No, the Holy Spirit is God himself, and somehow he dwells within us. But James goes on with this kind of uh uh-oh warning about what we do with the wisdom. If you read it too quickly, you can instantly get frustrated. He says, if you ask him with doubt, if you waver in your asking, you're going to receive nothing. That's, that's terrifying for me. I doubt everything. I'm always overthinking things. How would that even be possible? But I think it's safe to say that when we all, we've all doubted before, right? You've doubted, you've doubted. Garen, you've doubted. Cool. He's saying because of our doubt, God might not help us. He might not guide us. No, what we have to get right is when James is talking about doubt, it's not the idea of, well, what if this isn't going to happen? The doubt he's talking about is divided loyalty, right? This concept of I'll give lip service to God. I'll go through the motions, right? I'll go to church. I'll sing the songs. I'll go to youth group. You know, I'll have the prayer beads over my windshield. I'll have all this stuff and I'll go through the motions of faith. But when I really believe that God can do anything in my life, yeah, probably not. When he's talking about divided loyalty, he's saying, I'm a person here who just goes through the motions, but I don't believe that God can actually do anything. That's different than saying I have doubt of how this situation is going to play out. I say I believe in God, but my life and my actions tell a different story. I will sing the songs, I'll say the Christian phrases, but I don't believe he'll actually do it. 
So I'll go to the world for wisdom. I'll go to the world for satisfaction and to feel good in troubled times. Religiously, I'll pray the prayer for wisdom. But because I don't have a relationship with God, it's a prayer with no faith. It's a prayer with no hope. It doesn't give chance to, for God to actually move. And unfortunately, church, there's many who've gotten stuck in this way. Maybe even some in this church that we got stuck in a routine, this religion, but not trusting in the supernatural and sovereignty of God. It's not about doubting, but what we do with the doubt. Jesus wants us to come to him with our doubt. It's weird that we forget that we can be honest with God Right? We can be honest with God about our unbelief. Jesus is probably the only person in all of creation that wants us to come to him saying, hey, I don't trust you, but please help me trust you more. He will give us that trust and give us that wisdom. He doesn't want us to pretend that we believe. He doesn't want us to fake our faith. Right? The double-minded person, the person wrestling with doubt is the person that's merely stuck going in the motions. But the motive is all wrong. It reminds me of this father in Mark chapter 9 who brings his demon-possessed son to Jesus, right? Get the picture in your head. In Mark chapter 9, this dad brings a demon-possessed son to Jesus. Talk about a troubled time. But yet we turn our eyes from issues like this when it comes to like, you know, demons and angels and the supernatural. Like that's a little, uh, that's a little weird. We try to stay away from the topic, but scripture talks about it, so so are we. And a little spoiler alert, James is going to talk about it a lot in the next few weeks. But this son is being tormented by a demon, causing him to harm himself. And this father is desperate to help or to help his son. So he goes to Jesus, right? He's desperate now. And he's going to this man he heard that's delivering people from demons. And he goes, he goes up to Jesus and he's crying out to him. Listen to the words in verse 23 of chapter nine and tell me if you hear a divided faith. He says to Jesus, have mercy on us and help us if you can. I love what Jesus says. What do you mean, if I can? Jesus asked. Anything is possible if a person believes. Verse 24, the father instantly cried out, I do believe, but help me overcome my unbelief. Don't miss what the father did there. Jesus is saying, of course I can save him. Of course I can do all things. Of course I can help him. But the father, at the end of his rope, goes to Jesus, and in all honesty, he says, my son needs help, and so do I. God, Jesus, help my unbelief. When was the last time you were that honest with God? If you're doing that, that's awesome. But if you're afraid to tell God that you're having some doubts, let me challenge you, do it. He can take it. He's God. He's dealt with big things. This is powerful. We get scared to do this with God. And I wonder if fear makes us think that if we're honest with what we're really feeling, that God might reject us. When the truth is the exact opposite. God can take our honesty. He loves us in it. The person trying to pretend is the one that is unstable, getting tossed by the waves. But the man or woman who is honest with God is the one who is stable. That person is the one who sees miracles. That's the one who endures the trial. That's the one who grows in their faith. But what happens when we don't go to God? What happens if we continue to choose the world and doubt rather than go to God? Jump to James 1 verse 12. God blesses those who patiently endure testing and temptation. Afterward, they will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. And remember, when you are being tempted, do not say, God is tempting me. God is never tempted to do wrong and he never tempts anyone else. Trials and hard times are going to come. James tells us this, Jesus promised us this, but James reminds us if we endure, if we're patient and trusting in God, we'll receive a crown of life. And we will finish strong, amen? 
But people are weird. When good things come, we're like, oh, look at all the good I've done. Look what I've built. Look what I've made. Look what this thing I've done. But when bad things come, we quickly go to God and say, why are you doing this to me? Why are you punishing me? Why did this happen? When temptation comes and opportunities, when temptation comes and opportunities to sin begin to surface, we have this tendency to say, well, God must be testing me. Or, God, why are you punishing me? James is clear. God is not tempting you. Our doubts when unconfessed and unaddressed, lead to temptation. And each of these moments feels like a battle because it is. It's a spiritual battle. We've talked about that over the past few months. In verse 14, James tells us that we're in this battle. There's a root, right? Temptation comes where? Not from God. Temptation comes from our own desires, which entice us and drag us away. These desires give birth to sinful actions. And when sin is allowed to grow, it gives birth to death. We like to blame God when we're tempted. We like to justify our sin just like Adam did in Genesis chapter 3. It's the woman you gave me, Lord. Humanity has continued that trend of blaming God when we fall short. Each time, this is a lie. And we need to stop saying it. When we doubt God and his promises and don't address it, church, it leaves a gateway to temptation. That comes from the desires, not from God. Those temptations come from the desires within us. The ones God, the ones that we haven't placed in God's hands. It lures us through temptations away from God towards what we want. And in a moment of weakness, we'll look for some relief and we'll give in to sin, right? Anything that pulls us away from God, anything that God does not love and find wholesome and true, right? Sin, when unaddressed, begins to grow and we justify more and more and it actually gets easier to sin and soon we find ourselves not trusting God for help but continuing to look to the world for help. Instead of our troubles being a time of faith that grows us and matures us, sin has a way of making us become more comfortable with it. And soon we're dragged away from everything that can help us and stuck in a pattern of sin, stuck separated from God. When we are hurting, it's easy to justify, oh, well, I'll just watch that show. Or I'll look at that video that's been tempting me for a while. Or that might bring some satisfaction. Maybe I'll just have this emotional relationship that's just harmless flirting. Or maybe that next drink, I won't be too bad. Or whatever it may be for you. Maybe these sins, maybe these temptations are helping your troubled times grow instead of relieving them. In doubt, temptation is born from our selfish desires. And that can lead to sin. And sin, when unconfessed and unaddressed, matures. It grows up and becomes more powerful in our life, leading us, as verse 15 says, into death. Complete separation from God and those around us. Think about who James is talking to again. I always forget that when I'm reading these verses. I'm like, oh man, he must be talking to unbelievers. No, remember the audience. James is talking to the church. He's saying... Church, stop blaming God for your problems. Stop blaming God for when you sin. Meaning sin was still in the church. We can't romanticize the early church saying they had it perfect. They were screw up too. But they keep writing letters saying, go to God, go to God, go to God. And now today we're saying the same thing, go to God. He was seeing many people in the church giving in temptation and something spiritual yet ungodly was entering into their gathering and this was through doubt and temptation and sin and they were blaming God for their trouble. So James corrects them in verse 16. He says, 
So don't be misled, my dear brothers and sisters. Whatever is good and perfect is a gift coming down to us from God our Father, who created all the lights in the heavens. He never changes or casts a shifting shadow. He chose to give birth to us by giving us his true word, and we, out of all his creation, became his prized possession. He's telling the early church, don't get confused. The goodness of God can be found in any bad thing that you experience. The bad thing is not from God. Somehow we got it backwards thinking the punishment comes from God, but actually every good thing that comes from God, that's him. Most of the time, the bad situations, they've been brought on by ourselves. We can be honest about that. This is the good news they, and I think we need to hear. God is not absent from our times of trouble. His goodness and perfection and mercy can be found in all of it. The bad we've stumbled into, the garbage we've created. No trouble is too dark for him. If he can make the stars shine in the darkness of night, our doubt, temptation, and sin soaked troubles and our, our opportunities for him to also shine. God is good and he wants us to thrive. We need to live like we believe that, which is James's challenge. He doesn't want the church to pay mere lip service to God just talking the talk, but he wants the believer to actually walk the walk. It's okay. It's even normal to have doubt. It's okay to struggle. That's human. We all do that. But true joy will be found when we find ourselves honestly taking it to God. This is James's challenge to the church in verse 19. Understand this, my dear brothers and sisters. You must all be quick to listen and slow to speak and slow to get angry. Human anger does not produce the righteousness God desires. So get rid of all the filth and evil in your lives and humbly accept the word of God that has been planted in your hearts for it has the power to save your souls. But don't just listen to God's word. You must do what it says. Otherwise, you are only fooling yourselves. For if you listen to the word and don't obey it, it's like glancing at your face in a mirror. You see yourself, walk away, and forget what you've looked like. But if you look carefully into the perfect law, and that's his word, right? If you look carefully into the perfect law that sets you free, and if you do what it says, and don't forget what you heard, then God will bless you for doing it. We believe in scripture. The Bible this is the ultimate truth. This is why I continue to read this book when I get the chance to. And even when I don't get the chance, I gotta force myself and say, hey, I gotta be in this book. I can't go to other things, right? I have to go to the truth. I really believe this. I, yeah, I love having this moment where we can sit and talk together and, and kind of unpack this stuff. But let me tell you, the best sermons have already been written. They've been written down in this book, right? We gotta be in it. We call it God's word for a reason. This is telling us that if we want true joy, it won't come from getting angry in troubled times. It won't come from kicking the flat tire and saying, ah! This is the way our world and selfish desires want us to go. Instead, our joy will be found by slowing down, listening, and going to God. We ground ourselves in his word. So when troubles come, it leads to doubt, and that doubt can lead to sin, and that sin can lead to separation from God. It leads to getting stuck in the motion, to just listening to sermons and doing all the Christian things, but not actually doing what James is saying. That's fooling ourselves. Like looking in a mirror, seeing ourselves disheveled, a wreck, and walking away, forgetting what we saw, and thinking, ah, I look great. I promise I didn't do that today. I tried to put it together. Rather, when trouble times come, we go to God, and we trust even in the doubt. 
Somehow with God, you can trust him even while you're doubting. I don't know how it works, but it's awesome. We go to his word and we do exactly what it says. And I promise you, if you're in his word and you're doing exactly what he tells us to do, you will find true joy. Will life be perfect and peaceful and you won't ever have a flat tire? That's not what I'm saying. But you'll have joy, whether it's a flat tire or apparently if you're a missionary in another country put in a hole. Somehow you have joy. After our whole car debacle a few weeks ago, we had to bite the bullet and buy a new-to-us car when I'm having a kid this month, right? The timing. But in my opinion, you know, buying a car is never fun. It's kind of stressful. But as we were test driving the cars, we went to this dealership, and the salesman who was test driving the car with us asked me while we were driving. He was kind of like, so what do you guys do for a living? And I was like, well, I, me and my wife work for a church. I'm a pastor, blah, blah, blah. After that, the conversation took a complete turn. No longer were we talking about the car. He started saying, well, uh, hey, uh, my uncle's a priest. I'm like, okay. And he goes, yeah, he's a, he's a high priest in uh, the country that I'm from. And when he said that, we asked him what country, and it was actually the same country and region, almost to this down to the same city that us five guys went on a mission trip to over the summer. So we're driving, and he's like, oh, where I'm from, this part of the Middle East. My wife goes, my husband's been there. He goes, nah, why would you go there? And then we start to unpack everything, and he got so pumped. And like I said, no longer was it about the car. But he turns to me, he's like, can you explain this from the Bible? Can you explain this? Can you explain this? And then as we, we bought the car, so that made me even more happier. But as we were leaving, I kid you not, in the rain, he runs out to the car, tells us to roll down the window, gives me his card, and he says, will you call me because I want to learn more about the Bible? He's like, can we all do dinner? Yeah, clap for that. That's pretty awesome. My few weeks ago of trouble had an opportunity for great joy. So today, we have to ask ourselves, are we doers of the words or only hearers? That's reflective. You have to ask yourself. Are you merely going through the motions and doing all of this because you've done it your whole life or this is the routine of the culture or are you doing it because you're like, I want to actually follow God and he says to do this, so I'm going to do it. And I know that trusting in God, even in times of doubt and trouble, will somehow bring me true joy. So how do you handle troubled times? Where are you finding your joy today? I'm going to pray and then Pastor Jimmy's going to come up and, and lead us in communion. But if you are right in that moment now, if you're in that you know, darkness of soul and you're like, hey, I'm going through the troubled time and I need help. I need, to, I need to talk to someone. I need to get it out or I need someone to come alongside me as I go to God with it. I'll be up here. I'll be breaking stuff down. Please come up to me. We'll pray together. We'll talk it out. Um, we'll schedule a time. Me or the elders or anyone on staff or the board, we'll, we'll pray with you. Don't go through troubled times alone. So please, I'm going to be breaking stuff down from the worship team. Um, come up and talk to me. Pull me aside. I don't really care. You can distract me. Can we pray together? God, some of us have been going through real dark times. And we've been doubting. Will you help and guide us to your true joy? God, we know that your true joy is your son, Jesus Christ. Help us to put our faith in him. God, we, we thank you for the times that we've had troubled times and you were in the midst of it and it grew our faith. 
Help us to lean on you, God. Help us to be a church that's dependent on you, oh God. Maybe go after you. And if we are going through the motions, God, Holy Spirit, right now, would you convict us? Would you convict us to be like, hey, no, I want more than just lip service. I want a relationship with you. God, right now, Holy Spirit, in this room, will you fill us? Let's not be a church that just listens to the word, hears it, and then goes home and says, that was a good word today. No, let us do something with it, Lord Jesus. Guide us, guide our every step, Holy Spirit. We love and we thank you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. And God's people said, amen.